And as we celebrate in these next weeks, as we celebrate the atonement, I want to begin this morning as we will take over the next three weeks time to look at three different Old Testament passages. You see, Easter is not just, uh, and, the, and the death of Christ and Easter and the resurrection is not just a New Testament truth, though it takes place in the New Testament. It is something that God had designed and planned for eons before, before the foundation of the world, before man had ever even sinned. Think about that with me just for a moment. Before man had ever sinned, before you or I had ever been born and had ever committed one sin, God already knew and had prepared a way for us to be restored to Him. Boy, that ought to, that ought to bless somebody's heart this morning. That's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And that is the redemptive work that will take place. And so we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 12. Next week we'll look at Leviticus chapter 16 as we think about the, the reconciliation, a relationship restored, that we are restored to God. And then on Easter Sunday we'll look briefly at Isaiah chapter 53 with the, the suffering servant of Christ. And remember that our Redeemer has risen. The completion of our redemption is possible because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But this morning, I want you to look with me in Exodus chapter 12, and I want us to see the redemption remembered. Our redemption remembered. Begin reading with me, if you will, in verse 1. I'm going to read just a portion of this chapter, not the entire chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you, setting up a new calendar. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. They shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the door, upper doorposts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall, not let, in, ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning." That which remaineth of it unto the morning, ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. They were to constantly, as they took this Passover through the years to come, be reminded of the situation, that it was a matter of deliverance, that they were being delivered from slavery, that they were being freed from Egypt. Look at verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will exercise judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it, a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Drop down, if you will, to verse 21. Moses called for all the elders 
of Israel and said to them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of, at the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass when you shall come to the land which the Lord will give you, according as he has promised, that ye shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, what mean ye by this service? Let me pause there a minute and say, ask this question. Is there enough evidence of your faith that it creates and evokes curiosity in those around you? Do your children and your grandchildren and the ones in your family and the people around you, is there enough evidence of the change that has radically taken place in your life but it causes them to wonder there is something different about this? Why is this? What is the difference here? And it says this this memorial is not just for you to remember, it is for you to instruct your children and for them to find the same faith. He goes on to say in verse, down in verse 26, when they say, what mean you by the service? Verse 27, that you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses and the people bowed the head and worshipped, and the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. This is a memorial. There was a traveler who was traveling through Germany some decades ago. He visited a church, and he was surprised to see at the top of the um, the church's tower. He had seen many things. He had seen crosses and different symbols, but there was a lamb that was carved at the top of the church tower. And so he began to inquire about this and ask about this. And they said, well, here's the story behind that. When this church was being built, there was one of the workmen that was up building on this building, and he was up on a scaffolding. He was very high up, and he slipped, and he fell from the scaffolding several stories. And, of course, they all his co-workers rushed to the bottom to try to see where he was. They expected to find him crushed and dead. And they found him alive. And what had happened was a, a flock of sheep had been herded by in the street about that time. And he, as he fell, he landed on one of the sheep. Uh, not so good for the sheep, but it's, it saved his life. That sheep saved his life. And so to commemorate that, they made this memorial from the, and carved a, a lamb in the tower of the church from the height from which he fell. Israel also has a memorial of a lamb that had saved their lives. A lamb that was sacrificed, a lamb that was given. This is a memorial. This day, he said, will be a memorial for you. This is not a statue that will be built. This is not a, a sculpture that will be carved. This is a day and a statute that is for you to be reminded. God says, I want, want you to be continually and constantly reminded of what I have done to free you to deliver you, to redeem you. I want to say to us this morning that though we celebrate in the next weeks the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God wants us to continually and constantly be reminded of what we have in Jesus Christ, of what we have experienced. He wants us to be reminded. He wants us to have a memorial of this salvation. 
we need to be constantly reminded. This memorial that they take, there's three things I want to point to you in this passage, and then I, I want us to see some things that makes this relevant to our Christian experience. The first thing that this is a memorial of, of course, is, is the problem of sin. The problem of sin. This is the account where God is freeing the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, from Egypt and from slavery, from bondage. They have been slaves for over 400 years. God says, I'm going to send plagues. These plagues are not accidental. They are not random. They are purposefully against the gods of Egypt. Every plague was against a different god that the Egyptians worshipped. And in fact, God says in this passage, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. The, pur the purpose of this account, the purpose of this experience, was not merely to free his people, but it was to demonstrate to the Egyptians the power and the glory of God, that he was God. He said, then will all Egypt know. In other places he said, then will Pharaoh know. This is, the, this is the one who is God. All these others who you worship, all these others who you think are gods, are not gods. And let me say to us that everything this world offers to us as an idol, everything this world offers to us and our heart offers to us as a replacement for the worship of God is nothing but a false idol. There is only one God. There is only one who is worthy of our worship. And that is the purpose of what he is doing in this entire experience. Now, in the first nine of these, in these first nine plagues, these, the suffering had been selective. The Egyptians suffered from it, but the Israelites, never, it never touched them. When the plague was on the crops, it says it didn't touch the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. They were exempt from it. And when the plague came on the herds, he said he protected, God protected those of the nation of Israel. Their herds were not touched. It was a selective judgment. But here, the tenth plague is universal. All were under the, the penalty of death. All were facing death. And so God gives this answer. God gives this provision for there to be a sacrifice and for there to be protection. The protection from the previous nine plagues pointed them to the source of protection from the tenth plague. And this is, a, this is the application of a universally and a divinely offered and a divinely provided sacrifice. God's the one that's giving this answer. They've learned through nine plagues that it is God that protects them. And now when it comes to this tenth one, the one that is universal, and we too are all under the penalty of death. The wages of sin is death. And all have sinned, so all of us have earned the wage of death. A wage is that which you earn. You work for it. You deserve it. And we have worked and we have earned and we deserve death. The wages of sin is death. But I'm glad that the rest of that verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the message of this. He's reminding them of the sin. All will die. It is appointed unto man once to die. Someone has said that the death percentage is 100%. The death rate is 100%. We're all, unless Christ comes back and we're taken in the rapture, uh, when he come, we're alive when he comes back, we're all going to face death. It's just a matter of when. But all will die, and this is universal. There is none 
righteous, the Bible says, no, not one. And so the problem is sin. Their problem is the same problem we have. There's also in this memorial a remembrance of God's provision of salvation, God's promise of salvation. What God will do, God has promised to deliver. He says, I will free them from the land of Egypt. God is doing this. You realize that God could have taken his people out of, his, out of Egypt instantly, but he chose not to. I remind you that the God who can do things instantly has a reason when he chooses not to do so. When God takes his time, he has a reason. And so what God is doing here is for a reason. He is not only delivering them, but as he delivers them, he is going to get glory to himself upon the gods of Egypt and on the land of Egypt. And so he prepares. I want to pause here a minute and just say a word about this idea of atonement. Some people will say, well, pastor, isn't atonement an Old Testament word? It's rarely only found in the New Testament in one place, Romans chapter 5 and verse 11. And the word that is for atonement is the same word that we use for reconciliation. So the idea of atonement seems to be an Old Testament thing. Why are we talking about the atonement? Paul says we have received the atonement. We need to understand what that word means. The word atonement in English is just an old English word that means in the condition of being at one with. At one mint is really what the word means. Over time, however, it changed, as words tend to do. How many of y'all know that there's words that are used some ways now that didn't mean the same thing when we were a little bit younger? Y'all know what? I, okay, so there's words change. And so the word atonement became more of a, uh, in the English language, more of a theological idea of the atonement from our sins. It took on more than just reconciliation. It was the idea of being reconciled with God. In the Old Testament, the word kafar is the, is the Hebrew word for atonement, and it is the word to cover. Like the English word, it also changed over time. It's, generally, its general meaning is you just cover something. If you take this piece of paper and you cover that piece, it's just anything that's covered. But in the Old Testament, the use means more than that. It means the reconciliation that takes place because my sins have been covered. Boy, I'm so glad that my sins were covered by the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's the, that's the blessing of that atonement. And it was more than just merely covering. It was all that was involved in that. But it was a very general word. And when we come to the New Testament, it's as if the Holy Spirit inspired the New Testament writers not to use that general ambiguous word that potentially would be cloudy and confusing because that's what the Old Testament was. God used words like that in the Old Testament like he used symbols and types and, and shadows the Old Testament itself, the things that are pointing to Christ, and the same use of that word. But when you come to the New Testament, there is a multiplicity of words that are used to describe what God has done for us in the work of redemption. For example, he uses in Mark chapter 10, he uses the word ransom. We have been ransomed from our sins. We have been redeemed from our sins, Ephesians chapter 1. He has been provided a propitiation. Christ is the provided sacrifice, Romans chapter 3. We have been reconciled, Romans chapter 5. We have purification from our sins, Hebrews chapter 1. We have Christ offering himself as a sacrifice, Hebrews chapter 7. We have Christ taking away our sins in Hebrews chapter 10. Romans 5 says it's justification, that we are justified before God 
made righteous before Him. And Matthew chapter 1 speaks of saving us from our sins. All of this is what it means when we talk about the atoning work of Jesus Christ, that Christ took my place on the cross so that I could be reconciled to God, so that my sins could be taken away, not merely covered, but taken away as far as the east is from the west. So far has He removed our iniquities from us. Satan may bring up your past and your iniquities. Your memory may bring up your past and your iniquities. Your family and your friends may bring up your past and your sins and your iniquities. But God has removed our sins far from us. That's the work of salvation, the work of the promise of salvation. Boy, for for Israel, it was a matter of moving from death to life. No past, no, no blood on the door, you die. But now we have moved from life because God has provided a sacrifice. It's moving from slavery to freedom. And it's moving from sin to righteousness. And that is why God has saved us. God didn't save us just to get us out of Egypt. God didn't save us just to send us to heaven. God saved us to live holy and righteous lives in this world and to bring glory to Him. And that's what this atoning work. So this memorial that we're reminding ourselves, we're reminding ourselves of the problem of sin. And I think it's important not for us to go back and live in the memory of the sins that we, we dwelt in before we were saved. Sometimes people's testimony is all about all the wicked that they did. I remember a man who uh, shared his testimony with my family one time. He wanted to share it in the service. And he had a 30-minute cassette. And he, on one side, 60 minutes, 30 on each side, the first whole side was his testimony. And he spent 29 minutes, 29 and a half minutes, talking about how, many, how much drugs he did, how much alcohol he drank, all the money that he stole, the people that he abused. And then he spent about 30 seconds talking about salvation, about how Jesus saved him. Let me tell you, I'm not talking about dwelling in the past. But I think that it is good for us to remind ourselves to this memorial of the Passover, for us to remind ourselves of what God has saved us from, what we were, what we could have been, and what we, where we stood before Him. It's a memorial of the promise of salvation and all that that involves, but it's also a memorial of the provided substitute It's the substitutionary atonement. Now, substitutionary atonement is not the only way of understanding redemption. There's other aspects of it as well, but it is a clear New Testament theme that God accepts the sacrifice of one in place of the others. If we see in in this passage, if we started in verse 29 and read down through the next several verses, you see what happens when there's no substitute. When there's no blood sprinkled on the door and the death angel passes over, there's death. What happens when there is a substitute? You read in the following verses and we see that God puts His hand of protection over His people. Notice in chapter 12, verse 5, what this points us to. Is this just some ancient ritual? Is this just some archaic understanding of something they did thousands and thousands of years ago? What is the point of this? Well, in chapter 12, verse 5, notice something. He says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a lamb that is without fall. The New Testament tells us what this is pointing toward. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 and 19 says that we are not saved by corruptible things, but with incorruptible, 
We are saved with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The perfect, sinless Son of God was the one who was our lamb, who was our sacrifice. He's the one that went to the cross to take our place. He's the one that died where you and I should have died. The wages of sin is death, but Christ is the one that accepted our wages so that we might receive His gift. The gift of God is eternal life through who? Jesus Christ, our Lord. John chapter 1, you remember that John the Baptist is standing by the river Jordan and his two, his, uh, his disciples are standing with him. And he, the next day, John 1, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And it's not just in the Gospels and it's not just in the epistles, but you get to the book of Revelation and you come to chapter 5 and John sees a lamb as it had been slain before the foundation of the world. It is clear that Jesus is our substitute. In fact, Luke chapter, Luke chapter 23 will remind us that Jesus died when he died on the cross. He died at the same time that the Passover lamb was killed. Is there any question that this is what this is pointing to? You see, those in the Old Testament were not saved by doing good works. They were not saved by keeping the law. They were saved by faith in the sacrifice that was to come. We on this side of the cross are saved by looking back at the sacrifice that has already come. The one who has died for us. We see, they saw with shadows, they saw with generalities, but they had the faith that God was going to provide, God was going to send the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, that God was going to send the Passover lamb. He is our sacrifice. Notice also that the blood is significant. In verse 7, verse 12, and verse 13, the blood had to be sprinkled on the doorpost. I will point out this to you. If you take a door frame and you sprinkle blood on both sides, and you sprinkle blood on the top post, it doesn't take much to draw a line from top to bottom and from side to side, and you have an image of the cross. The blood that was shed, let me tell you that the blood was essential. The blood is significant. This demonstrated at least, if not more, three things about redemption. First of all, the blood had to do with the price of redemption, that a life had to be sacrificed. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And there had to be a death. There had to be a sacrificial death. It's not a matter just of Jesus could have pricked his finger and dropped a little blood. There had to be sacrificial death. The life of the flesh is in the blood. The price that was paid, Jesus paid the ultimate price for our sins. This morning, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, and I never take for granted that there's not someone here who is not hoping in something else, or has never trusted Christ. I want you to know that Christ loved you so much that He laid down His life for you. He suffered the ultimate sacrifice and paid the ultimate price so that you could be reconciled to God and brought into fellowship with Him. The penalty was His death. There had to be the death, and then there's the provision of it. There's substitutionary. It's Christ taking our place. I'm reminded of the story when Abraham and Isaac are headed up the mountain. 
Isaac says, Father, where is the lamb? We have the fire, we have the wood. And Abraham prophetically says, God will provide himself a lamb. God will provide a lamb for himself, and God himself is the lamb. The Passover was in preview of Christ. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, purge out the old leaven, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast with sincerity and truth. You see, our, our sacrifice, our Passover, is not to have another sacrifice. It's to remember Christ's sacrifice. It's to remember what he has done. And it's not just during Passion Week and leading up to Easter. It is every single day of our lives. The Passover, the sprinkling of the blood, the meal are all pointing to Jesus Christ. How does this affect me? How does this affect you? Pastor, this is a 4,000-year-old ritual. Why does it matter to me? It matters to us because we're in the same situation. We are born sinners. And if there's no blood applied, there will be death. But I'm thankful that the blood is available, that the sacrifice of Christ is available, that the atoning work of Christ is available. What is, what, why, why should we do this? Well, let me, let me just pause a minute and say, what, what does it mean for this to be a memorial for us? I think the way that we create and we engage this memorial is, first of all, we can remind ourselves daily of the gospel. You say, preacher, I'm saved. I'm, I get tired of heard somebody say, I wish you preachers would preach something besides the gospel. Let me tell you that we preach whatever the gospel applies to, but you never get beyond the gospel. I'm not talking about we get up every Sunday and just give the Romans road. But the, the, gospel, the gospel is the basis of every truth in Scripture and every work of the Spirit in our lives and everything that we experience. So we remind ourselves, what is it to remind myself of the gospel? That my standing before God is not in anything that I have done, but that it is only by the grace of God. And God, today, I don't have to prove myself to you. I don't have to earn your love. I don't have to earn your pleasure. I have already received it as a gift through the work of Jesus Christ. And whatever I do for you today, God is not to try to earn salvation. And it's not to try to earn a place in heaven. And it's not to try to earn your love. It is because you love me. That is what it means to remind ourselves. And to remind ourselves that our worth is found not in who we are or who we aren't, but in who Christ is. I think we repent of sin daily because of the gospel. Paul said, purge out the old leaven. We rejoice daily in the gospel. Pray the gospel. Sing the gospel. Remind yourself of the gospel daily. Meditate on it. I am saved by his worth, not my own. So what does that do for me? Two things and I'm done. First of all, it gives me assurance of my standing before God. My standing before God is not based on me being a pastor. My standing before God is not based on the fact that my parents were Christians. My standing before God is not based on my 
political affiliation or my conservative ideology or any of those other things that people seem to think will get them into heaven. My standing before God is sure and steadfast because it is rooted in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And it's not merely because of my faith. My faith can be weak. Your faith can be weak. But my salvation is not based in the strength of my faith, but it is based on the strength of the work of the one in whom my faith is placed. It is in Him and in Christ alone. That's, the, that's where my, my assurance comes. That my standing before God is settled and sure. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ did. His work has satisfied the demands of God. I can walk in peace and comfort. I can walk in assurance, not because I've earned it, not because I've worked hard enough and I'm better than anybody else, but because he's better than everybody else. A second thing that this does for us is that it is an anchor in the storms. See, this is more than just knowledge and more than just information. This is more, this is real this is, where, this is where the Christian life gets real. How can we, as I said at the beginning, rejoice in times of death? How can a family stand around the bedside of a loved one and quote the 23rd Psalm and sing, It is well with my soul as their loved one passes into heaven. They can do so because they know what Christ has done. They know what salvation is. They know that they'll see that loved one again. They know what redemption is. And when the storms come, and when the, the, the winds of grief blow, and the, the rains of tears fall, and when the, the clouds and mist of uncertainty blow in our lives, and anxiety and fear and depression come into our lives, and our faith seems to be shaken, it is not in my faith that I stand, but it is the one that my faith stands upon. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. He is the one that is our anchor. He is the one that is the anchor within the veil. He is the, the, His atoning work. Why do I remind myself of it? Because that is the stone upon which I stand when the wind blows. When my faith is uncertain, when my mind is uncertain, and my heart is uncertain, I find my certainty in the work of Jesus Christ. So as we celebrate the atoning work of Christ in these days, I pray that God draws our hearts and minds to more than just rituals and traditions and all the forms that we do. I pray that He draws our hearts and minds to the glory of His atonement. Let me close with a quote from a Christian writer 1,900 years ago in the second century. And as I read this, remember with me. When our iniquity had come to its full height, and it was clear beyond all mistaking that retribution in the form of punishment and death must be looked for. The hour arrived in which God had determined to make known from then onwards His loving kindness and His power. How surpassing is the love and tenderness of God. 
in that hour, instead of hating us and rejecting us and remembering our wickednesses against us, He showed how long-suffering He is. He bore with us, and in pity, He took our sins upon Himself and gave His own Son as a ransom for us, the holy for the wicked, the sinless for the sinners, the just for the unjust, the incorrupt for the corrupt, the immortal for the mortal. For was there indeed anything except His righteousness that could have availed to cover our sins? In whom could we, in our lawlessness and ungodliness, have been made holy, but in the Son of God alone? O sweet exchange, O unsearchable working, O benefits unhoped for, that the wickedness of multitudes should thus be hidden in the one holy, and the holiness of one should sanctify the countless wicked. The blessed truth of redemption, the blessed truth of the atonement that we have in Jesus Christ. This morning, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, I hope that you won't leave this place today without receiving Him, placing your faith and trust in Him. If you're going through a storm this morning, I hope that instead of looking at the wind and the rain and the mist and all the terrible things around you, you'll focus your eyes and sink your anchor deep onto the rock of ages. I was walking through the park some time back and I noticed a child that was walking and the child had his hand up in his father's hand and he only had just a finger or two. But the father's hand was all the way around the child's hand. And I thought to myself as the child stumbled a little bit, that child thinks he's holding on to God, on to the father. But really he is only holding on to the father because the father's holding on to him. And I want you to know that in the storms of this life, we can hold on to God because no matter how weak our grip may be, the father's grasp of us will never let go. It is eternal because it is the work of Christ in atonement. Father, I pray this morning for my brothers and sisters that are struggling and challenged. Father, may they find the rest and comfort, not just for their salvation, but Lord, for their, their stability in this life and storms. May they find that in Christ. May they experience that this morning. May they come to Christ again, Lord, not to seek to be saved again, but Lord, to seek the strength that they need. And Father, I pray that if there's one wandering lamb that has left the fold, Father, that you will draw them this morning as the good shepherd. Father, they will experience today the full blessedness of what you did at Calvary. May we remember, not just in this moment, but through the week ahead, May we remember our redemption.